This is a journey into sound. Brought to you in living color on WTDR. I'm Tony Epstein. It's the Magical Mystery Tour. Join us as we dive into the heart of things, exploring new ideas and new ways of seeing and being in this wondrous, crazy world we share together. Lying on your back in the grass, you can't see a thing except for the clear blue sky, a few cotton wool clouds, higher and higher in the great dome of the sky, filling it with song. They sound quite mad, don't they? It's a story, but that's why I'm here to tell you stories. My guest this morning is Margaret Winslow. Margaret is a field geologist with over 30 years experience romping around Central America, South America, and the Caribbean. She's written a couple of travel memoirs, and she has a donkey named Caleb, a large white donkey who she writes about in her new book, Smartass, How a Donkey Challenged Me to Accept His True Nature and rediscover my own. So, Margie Winslow, welcome to the Magical Mystery Tour. Well, thank you for having me on your show, Tonio. Well, I'm really looking forward to this conversation. Um, Fascinating story, harrowing at times, and things turned out very well for the two of you. But it was an often upended and harrowing ride along the way for me as well as a reader. Really? Yes. I, I, some others have said that too. Yeah, it was, it was quite a roller coaster ride. And, and a lot of it was actually kind of horrifying for me. To, I mean, you, you wrote about the things that, that happened to you in, in such a visceral way for the readers. Yes, I tried to focus right in on the the um, face-to-face moments with the donkey, um, although there is, uh, as you know, some information about donkeys in general and history and archaeology and um, genetics and all that, but, uh, but I really 
chose to focus right in on on day-to-day um, experiences with Caleb. And I would love, we'll get into some of the history of donkeys in, you know, in, in human civilization, but to begin with, what what possessed you to want to get a donkey, and and where were you in your life at the time that you you got Caleb? Okay, uh, what possessed me? Right, uh, why in the world <laughs> would um, an overworked, uh, overstressed, um, uh, middle aged um, college professor, urban college professor, want to do with a donkey? Um, yeah, there are two strands there. One is. Um, and I only remembered it after I became interested in donkeys as an adult. But, um, but the, chronologically, uh, when I was a little girl, the Sears catalog was our annual wish book. It came out around Thanksgiving, and we kids would devour it and circle toys and stuff we wanted and, and sometimes clothing or pajamas. <laughs> and, um, uh, and one day, I happened to just uh, be browsing through, and I got to a section on farm animals. And until the early 60s, Sears and some other catalogs, including uh, Neiman Marcus, uh, carried live animals for sale. And so I came across this page for a genuine Mexican burro. And I had, um, I was about five, six years old, and uh, I had seen horses and ponies and was already fascinated with them in the in the suburbs of New York where I grew up. But um, this this rabbity-eared pony, sort of looking out towards the viewer, uh, and then a little girl standing right next to him uh, with a Dale Evans outfit, just like my own. <laughs> and I thought, oh my gosh, I want to have this. So I pestered my parents for years and top of my uh, Christmas wish list. And uh, I got a stuffed donkey uh, for Christmas instead. Uh, my father tried to explain zoning to me, and, um, and our 50-by-80-foot backyard would not accommodate a donkey. So I never actually saw a live donkey until I was working in the Caribbean um, in the Dominican Republic. And in rural areas, um, I noticed them. They were everywhere. Um, hauling water uh, during the dry season up from the rivers and taking kids to school and taking um, um, people to market. And um, I was the first thing that struck me was that they weren't wearing any, usually no, no bridle or rope or halter or anything. And they seemed to know exactly where to go um, and when to go uh, to pick up the kids at school. And so because I'd been horse crazy as a as a kid and had uh, taken riding lessons and stuff like that. Um, I just want to know more about these sort of funny-looking horses with rabbit ears. And um, and so I then uh, did the modern thing and got online and joined some groups. And, um, uh, and then I went to some donkey mule shows, and I decided that um, I would really like to have a donkey. So let's talk about the Difference, some of the differences between donkeys and horses. I think donkeys are, particularly in this country, are are pretty unknown, or mm. people don't really understand them. And and 
and they have a reputation for being stubborn and and difficult to mold to your will. <laughs> right, right, yeah. Um, the first uh, donkeys came in with the um, Spanish colonists, um, and they came up through the Rio Grande Valley, so they, they were much more common in the West. Um, and then they became the uh, ATV of their time for uh, gold prospectors, or uh, miners in general, in the, again in the West, Southwest. And they were uh, well adapted to uh, desert uh, and, and rocky. Uh, they're very, very agile. They climb very well um, and eat very sparse things. They, they're more browsers and grazers, so they, they could eat, you know, cactus and other poor foods. And then when... Um, um, mechanization came in, um, like with with uh, farm horses, uh, they became less valuable, and so now they're uh, sort of more of a novelty and a pet. Although there are some, uh, especially in the uh, Amish and um, uh, other Pennsylvania Dutch communities, where they still use them for plowing, and um, so they. Uh, yeah, so so that that sort of <laughs> in a nutshell is the history of donkeys in America. Um, they're still used uh, worldwide. There are about forty million donkeys worldwide, and most of them are are work animals. Um, many are not treated very well, but um, one of the reason why reasons why they're not treated well, and I'll get back to the other thing about the stubbornness in a minute, is that. Um, they can survive on very poor conditions. They can become extremely dehydrated without uh, collapsing like a horse. And, um, and they don't need uh, good quality hay, uh, which they, they appreciate it if they have it. <laughs> um, and therefore, because they didn't require much, they didn't get much. And over the centuries, uh, they found from the archaeological information in the uh, North Africa, they got smaller and smaller uh, over time uh, and uh, they started out fairly large like like my donkey but I'll get to his rather uniqueness um, and they became a lot smaller than <clears throat> than they originally were when they were domesticated in um, North Africa so okay so the the stubborn thing um, people always ask about this uh, and I have to say that the expression stubborn as a mule, um, well, the mule gets its personality from its donkey father. Um, the uh, a, a mule is a hybrid between a donkey and a horse, as some people may or may not know. So anyway, stubbornness. Uh, we donkey owners never use the word, never, never, never use the word stubborn. Well, <laughs> usually don't. Um, we like to say that donkeys are circumspect. Um, independent, autonomous. They like to solve problems on their own. And more than anything else, they need to trust their partner, their human partner. And they will not submit as a horse will. And, um, and that, if I, would you like me to say a little bit about the difference between horse, horses and donkeys in their, in their training? instincts in their training sure very briefly yeah um uh, horses are herd animals and they um evolved in the uh, the grasslands of central asia 
uh, very uh, few places to hide, you know, such as canyons and things like that. There's wide open spaces, and they evolve speed as their main form of defense. So flee of the flight, fight, and freeze options, they are A-plus a on the fleeing, um, as we know, <laughs> run away with riders and things like that. So anyway, and the herd um, is the primary social unit, and so they will submit to an alpha uh, in the herd, uh, seek out an alpha, in fact, whereas donkeys evolved in the desert of North Africa, and they... Um, uh, are semi-solitary in the wild, uh, like sort of like deer, with some differences, and therefore um, they, because of the poor uh, food options and, and scarce water, they tended to graze far apart from each other, sometimes miles apart. So they didn't have the advantage of numbers. A herd can be intimidating to a, a predator. Um, even if even if the herd is running away from the predator, it, it's still a big um, big body of of individuals and dangerous looking. Uh, and the donkey had to stand his own on the uh, in the wild. And so, of the options, the fight, flight, or freeze, which all of us animals have, um, they chose the freeze first and then fight. So the thing is, they don't have alphas. Uh, and they do, okay, so that that's the thing. They, they don't have alphas. But unlike deer, they are not afraid of novelty or other animals. So whereas deer will generally keep their distance and, 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 and they'll also flee, um, donkeys are very curious and uh, sometimes described as gregarious, and they will... They're interested in something different. So if a human comes along and wants to uh, walk along with them, they, they can be interested in the human. And the, the big word, though, is trust, because they will not submit. And people over the centuries who have tried to train donkeys like horses using negative reinforcement, like whips and spurs and confinement and... Uh, denying them food, et cetera, et cetera. They do not work with donkeys. You get a very mean animal if you use negative reinforcement. Um, however, like all of us animals, they respond very well to positive reinforcement. And so, in a way, you sort of have to sell it to them. So, so let's go for a ride, or <laughs> let's let's cross that stream. That looks easy. And sometimes you can't sell it. Sometimes it takes a lengthy negotiation, but um, if you um, notice I'm not saying stubborn, uh, <laughs> to get them to do what you want. But if they trust you and you're their good buddy, uh, they're willing to do most anything. You know, as you as you talk about donkeys and their their behavioral characteristics kind of sounds a bit like me. <laughs> yes. <laughs> well, in fact, uh, I think I mentioned in the book that I really identified with everything I read about donkeys, about them being, they're non-aggressive. On the other hand, um, they won't back down from a confrontation. Uh, they're independent. They're, 
sort of underdogs. Um, they're underappreciated, uh, underestimated. They're a lot smarter than they appear, and they're smarter than horses. Uh, there are objective studies that are beginning to show that. that that's um, uh, not just anecdotal. So, so yeah, I found that I related to, uh, especially since I was feeling very overworked and underappreciated at my job as a college professor at the time, and I thought the donkey would just be the perfect, um, <laughs> the perfect mirror for me. Uh, and I've been called stubborn a lot by people. <laughs> In fact, people have told me to my face that I'm the most stubborn person they've ever met. <laughs> so when I use the term stubborn in relation to donkeys, I don't mean it in a in a particularly negative way. Right, I hear you. I, I've been personally described as tenacious, and I, I accept that. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I'll stick to something even if it's hopeless um, until I uh, get it done, like writing books or being the only woman. Um, in my department, trying to get tenure and et cetera, et cetera. So, yeah, I, I stick things. I put one foot in front of the other, and I keep going no matter what. And I, I think that describes a donkey very well, too. Yes. You know, you didn't really go into your your field ge- geology background at all or, or adventures in that realm, but maybe maybe it would be useful to to just briefly talk a little bit about that because I know that you you did a lot of your your field work in very remote um, parts of the world, like like the southern end of South America, for example. Yes, yes, um, yeah. I uh, I started out at uh, Virginia Tech, um, which we then just called VPI, and um, I was taking. This is in the. Uh, uh, late 60s, I was taking geology courses and getting A's and doing the, um, you know, field assignments. And I was told I could not major in geology. I could take all the courses I wanted, but I could not declare a major. Why? Because there was a field course requirement. Why? Because the women could not go on the field on the field course because there were supposedly no women's bathrooms. Ha ha. So since we were all camping out all the time anyway. It's ridiculous. But anyway, so I found the University of Indiana uh, did a co-ed field course, very highly respected, still is, um, nationwide. And I said, well, I'll I'll take their field course and I'll transfer it back. And they said they wouldn't transfer back the credit. So this was something that would never stand up to legal scrutiny these days. But again, I'm, I'm not a a fighter, uh, but I'm more of a, a slogger. So I transferred to Columbia, and um, my uh, the my potential advisor immediate he never for one second doubted that I could do field work. Uh, he knew I had been doing some stuff in the Appalachians, and I wrote a paper on it. Um, so he asked me where I wanted to do my thesis, and I said. Oh well, I you know I've been working down in uh, West Virginia, Virginia area. I, I you know I could do a thesis on that. And he said, well, you know, there's a whole mountain range. Now he's an Antarctic explorer um, and worked all over the southern hemisphere. And um, he said, you know, there's a mountain range at the tip of South America that really hasn't been mapped. 
Um, and it's like the Appalachian, similar rock types. Would you like to do your thesis there? <laughs> so I said, um, I think I'd been as far as um, maybe crossing the Canadian border at that point. Um, I said, sure. And so he got me air tickets and um, and I went. And so I um, ended up working down at the, right along the Strait of Magellan um, and between there and Cape Horn, um, Eagle Channel, et cetera, initially with other um, grad students and postdocs from Columbia and University of Wisconsin, but later on by myself. And, um, and it was during a military dictatorship, uh, Pinochet, in Chile, and um, so I uh, had to do a lot of fancy talking to get out of some um, difficult situations. Actually, was arrested once. Um, you know, you go around with aerial photos and maps, and um, and you're a foreigner, and of course you're a spy. So there were some harrowing moments um, in those experiences. So, so I wanted to do field geology. I love um, uh, nature. I always intended to teach, and after I graduated, I started teaching at the. City University in New York, where I taught for 30 years, and um, took early retirement and started writing. And uh, so, okay, so that's sort of my uh, career trajectory. But I, one of the themes, because I, when I give talks, sometimes I talk about my two travel um, memoirs as well as the Donkey Book. Uh, recently, people have asked for everything, <laughs> and. Um, and I've said, you know, one thing they have in common, they're, they're all journeys, a uh, personal journey, uh, and they all involve sort of trying to do something I wasn't really qualified for initially against pretty steep odds, not impossible, but steep, uh, and sticking with it till I got somewhere. And so that's what all these books have in common. So doing it the hard way on your own, kind of, kind of like the the donkey's approach. <laughs> yes. Uh huh. So, so, um, so, so tell us how you found Caleb and describe describe him because he's a unique donkey, and and how he responded to you when you first met him. Right. Okay. So, just um, uh, a tiny sprinkling of backstory. Um, when I got back from the Dominican Republic, looked up donkeys, went to shows. Okay, I decided I wanted to get a donkey. Now, I, I had ridden as uh, a young, you know, child and adolescent, and but a horse ran away from me with me uh, when I was twenty and threw me over his head, and I landed on my neck. Uh, very lucky uh, to be able to uh, get up from it. And but I had a lot of neck problems, and the upshot of it was that as much as I loved horses, I never wanted to ride again, and I just appreciated them from afar. But that was it. And this seeing them in the Dominican Republic with little tiny kids on them, and you know, no basically no saddles or bridles, just a piece of rope around their neck. Um, I started to think about this. So what? Okay, so I decided that I'd want to know more about donkeys. I already said that. But then I um, knew that I was going to have to keep a donkey at a stable. And there's six stables in my county. Uh, the number keeps shrinking. And 
not one of them, except the last one, would take a donkey. They said, oh, they're impossible, the barrier won't deal with them, the veterinarian won't touch them, blah, blah, blah. Uh, they kick, they bite, um, and, you know, other stereotypes. So uh, I had almost given up when I found the last stable, which um, I hadn't been able to find before. And the owner was intrigued, and she said they used to have a donkey, uh, not, not a riding one, a small one. And um, and she wanted to know more, and then she found out about my phobia of riding, and she said, well, before you bring an animal here, you're going to take six months of horseback riding lessons, which I did. I started out very nervous, and I got to be good. And she had me work with different kinds of horses and learn uh, grooming and dealing with their hooves. And so six months into this, uh, I saw an ad in the American Donkey and Mule Society's uh, magazine called The Brayer <laughs> for a large white standard donkey. And I contacted the owner. She sent me wonderful pictures. Even though he was four years old, he was not quite full-grown. Uh, but she also sent baby pictures, which were just lovely. They're, some of them are in the book. Um, and I, so I went to meet uh, her donkey, Caleb. And at that time, he was a guard donkey for sheep and goats. The woman uh, is a cheesemaker and weaver up near Buffalo, New York. And I drove up there, and I saw this donkey, and he was so much bigger than... I expected. Uh, she had sent it, the specs, the official specs of his height, but <laughs> a 54 inches at the shoulder doesn't count the neck and the head and those foot-long ears. So, so there was this thing about seven feet tall in front of me, and I thought, oh, my God, he's huge. And, um, and so it took, took some uh, talking, but what, what um, happened right away was Caleb decided he was very eager to meet me. I, I didn't know if this was his usual drill with anybody. Um, and uh, we ran back and forth out, uh, with him inside the fence, me outside. And, and then I rode him, and he did everything I wanted. And the owner said, um, you know, despite the fact that he was huge, uh, uh, she said, oh, you know, he, you're the fifth owner. You're the fifth buyer to look at him. Not a good thing. Um and I asked, what, why is that? And she said, well, he decided he didn't like them, and he wouldn't do anything for anybody, no matter what they did. Even if they kicked them and whipped them, he wouldn't do anything. And they declared him to be stupid and untrainable. And he did everything I wanted. So she may have been laying it on a little bit thick because she wanted to sell the donkey. <laughs> he had definitely outgrown her, her property. Um, and she wanted to get a mini donkey, which apparently can send off coyotes and uh, feral dogs as well as a as a big one. So, Caleb. Well, it turns out he is um, his sire was a mammoth donkey, uh, and these are donkeys that are bred with uh, draft horses to make draft mules. They're they're big. Uh, and the, he's an Andalusian-type donkey. Uh, they were bred over the centuries in southern Spain and Andalusia 
for the aristocracy, and they're always white. Um, it's not albinism. Um, and uh, they were not work animals. They were uh, used by the royalty. So uh, anyway, I uh, found myself uh, rather quickly in uh, the being owned by a, uh, shall we say, a royal ass. Mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah, I... I toyed with the idea of of, of introducing um, the two of you as, you know, it was hard to tell who owned who in this relationship <laughs> or who was the boss. Yeah. Well, one of the trainers, because I had various relationships with various trainers, said, you know, you've got to be the alpha, which is a standard thing for, for horse training. Right. Um, and and for some donkey trainers, but uh, I have never been the alpha, even for my 10-pound cat. I'm just, you know, they can see right through me if I try to be tough. And so uh, so it was one of the things, and some of the humor and some of the pathos of the book has to do with my not wanting to use harsh methods on Caleb. At the same time, I needed him to do certain things. I needed him to be safe around. Um, I needed to get him from the, the stall to the paddock and back. He, you know, I needed to ride him. So I had to have him submit or obey or cooperate at least uh, on things. And that took a long time because I didn't know how to do it. Um, but I was absolutely determined not to, um, even though I sometimes lost my temper and stomped off in a and a bit of peak. Um, I really did not want to use uh, traditional uh, breaking methods, which break the animal spirit. I just wouldn't. I couldn't. And so that's how our relationship evolved. But that's that was the way that that all the trainers were were trying to get. They were trying to get you to establish who was boss, and <laughs> and to and to make sure that. The donk that Caleb knew who was in control, and and you struggled for years with that, because yeah. on the one hand, you you were deeply conflicted. You didn't want, and I can I totally related to that because I feel the same way um, when it comes to horsemanship, which I have no direct experience with, but I've interviewed mm-hmm. a few people about it. I'm in, I'm totally into the the natural horsemanship thing where where you yeah. establish a. a a real connection, uh, a trusting, and which is which is really based on being fully present with with the the animal, rather yes, than right. rather than doing a battle of wills with them and right and doing and, uh, marching up to them with a checklist and <laughs> right and a whip and, and a whip and and an, and an agenda right mm-hmm. right exactly yeah. and. I forgot where I was going with that, but uh, all right, you were you were deeply conflicted, but you, but you were you were scared from your past experience of being thrown from a horse, and and you needed to to be able to get Caleb from his stall up yeah. to the ring to to learn to ride him, yeah. and and you 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 had this ongoing struggle. Both outwardly and inwardly for for a few years, for the first few years, and 
And at the same time, all of the the people that you worked with, the, the Bridgmans and Laura from the stable that you stable Caleb at, mm-hmm. were, it seemed like they were expecting you to know what to do, that they expected you, yeah, that they expected you to know what you were supposed to do, and yeah. yet you... You you never did it. You you always failed. You you were always doing all the things that they kept telling you not to do. So it was like your your inner donkey was was like coming through the whole time, and yet you you had such a hard time for for all those years of you know figuring your way through the that whole kind of um, morass. Yes. <laughs> Yes, this is true, and um, I and because I, I wanted to accomplish certain goals, but I had this inner donkey speaking up, as you say, it was beautifully. Um, I couldn't apply them consistently. Now, um, as as you know from the the book, um, I was it was a very stressful time in my career, extremely busy, and the whole college was putting whole departments on the block, and anyway, it's a lot of things going on, and I did not have as much time as would be ideal to work with it, which is why it took, um, you know, several years rather than um, rather than a year or two, um, and also I had to undo the fact that Caleb had been basically a pasture ornament. <laughs> uh, uh, you know, he, he had had a tiny amount of saddle training, but uh, nobody really rode him. So we were starting from scratch, and um, and I have to say on Laura's behalf, because uh, she and I are still, um, uh, well, he he he, uh, he and she see each other every day, because um, she is the uh, owner of the stable. Um, she is a um, a riding instructor and not a horse trainer, and that's thing um there's one thing about when if you're a riding instructor your focus you have a well-trained horse schooling horse and the horse knows what to do even when you don't and then the rider learns you know the, the proper posture and seat positions and everything what to do what not to do to to maximize everything going right and um so i had this um semi wild donkey and then combined with me with absolutely no training experience, and then with this conflict about not wanting to um, dominate, because, uh, like I said, some some of the uh, rather hilarious stories, I hope you found them hilarious. Yes, uh, <laughs> and I want you to tell some of them. <laughs> okay. um, but, um, but also uh, some of the more serious. Um, and some of those as well, yes problems that we had yeah i'll give a very short kind of example or well we image. have we have a lot of time so so oh. i want i i would love for you to get into some of these stories because i love stories and i know that my listeners love love hearing stories too oh wonderful and um, i'm sure you would enjoy telling stories i mean that's being a writer that's what that, that's what you do absolutely and in fact um i was going to writers conferences and pitch pitch conferences to pitch my other books, my writing, my travel books. Um, and then over in, you know, in the evening over beer and wine, um, just chatting with people, I would say, I would t- 
tell some donkey stories, and I hadn't written any of them down yet. And I had a, a couple of agents say, well, you know, there's a book in there. Um, and uh, But it took me a while because I, I wanted to, well, first of all, I had to retire, and I had uh, um, also went through uh, cancer treatments, and, and then, um, well, cancer treatments, then retired, and then wanted to get my first two books out that I've been working on. Um, so Caleb's book uh, waited a little while. I think that's actually for the better um, because uh, as I've grown as a writer and also have had more feedback and critique and editing, um, I think the book uh, really, you know, uh, reads well uh, and, um, you know, something to be proud of. And if I had gotten it out two or three years ago, I... It might not have been quite as uh, quite as polished, but anyway, that's that's a side point. Um, yeah, I just one image I just wanted to give you um, since we have a little time. Uh, in the ring, okay, I'll have Caleb trot around the the big ring once, and then we'll be starting around on a second round, and I can almost imagine his gears clicking in his brain, saying, "Wait a minute, we already did this." Why are we doing this again? Now, I see horses at the stable going around and around in circles for 30 minutes, 60 minutes straight uh, with their riders. And Caleb has sort of been there, done that. And the thing is, I immediately identify with it, that he gets bored, I get bored, we lose focus, he wanders off. I suddenly realize he's wandering off and I start paying attention again. And, um, and another example in the same genre is that, um, you know, we'll put out traffic cones and weave in and out of traffic cones. And Caleb actually likes to do that. He likes to figure out things. And But after we've done it a couple times, um, it'll be like, okay, what's next? Uh, so I don't know if we both have um, ADD or something. We probably do. Um I, uh, we, we're, we're easily bored and easily distracted, and he wants to do something else. So one of the things that he does is he'll pick up one of the traffic cones and throw it over the fence. <laughs> <laughs> Make me dismount and go after it. Uh, so that, that introduces... Or chew, or, or chew it up. Or chew it up. Uh, in the case of the jumps, uh, knocking them over. Mm-hmm. Um, and uh, picking up... Um, things, uh, he very much like a dog will pick up an object. Uh, it could be a, uh, a rake that's been left out uh, or um, a spare bridle or something. He'll pick it up and he'll run around with it shaking his head just like a dog will do when he's playing with an object. It's, it's really incredible. And, and the other horse owners at the stable, Caleb's the only donkey, will say, I've never seen an equine do that before. He's he's very playful, mischievous. Um, he lets he, he figured out how to get out of the stall very quickly, and then open all the many of the stalls because they're of different vintages have different kinds of latches, and some are chains, some are uh, deadbolts, etc. And he would go around and open other horses after he got out himself. He'd open other horses. <laughs> stalls and let them out. And so uh, Laura would come in at 5.30 in the morning and there'd be a riot 
A horse is running around the barns uh, with Caleb in the lead, usually. Uh, <laughs> so I was sure that we were going to get kicked out because there are some very valuable horses there. Um, but for some reason, it's very hard to take it seriously. So, so one latch on Caleb's stall became two. He figured out how to get out over that and then became three. And this one has a spring, and he's working on it. Um, he hasn't gotten out, but uh, just last year, uh, last fall, he um, there was a pony party in the ring next to the paddock where he was loafing, and he was very interested in braying, and he was being ignored, and he wanted to join the party. So he actually lifted up one of the supports to the gate, so the gate half fell over. And he stepped out of the gate and walked over and joined the pony party. <laughs> Determination. <laughs> Absolutely. Tenacious. Tenacity, curiosity, mischievousness, uh, they all apply. You know, I neglected to, to have you ta- um, describe Caleb's braying. Donkeys are, are famous for the way for the sounds they make. And and Caleb was particularly loud, wasn't he? Yes, he is. Um, uh, Of course, you know, being, you know, I'm such a, I'm the donkey's mother, so I think he has the the best and loudest prey in the world. But anyway, I actually had some proof of that. Uh, When we were, uh, we go up to an upstate New York show in Schoharie, New York, and it's, the second biggest, right now, second biggest uh, donkey and mule show. And uh, so he he uh, boards there with, um, you know, a dozen or more uh, donkeys and mules for the show. And uh, I, I came back. I was uh, staying nearby. Um, came back early in the morning, and there was a sheriff's deputy standing there. And he said, that there your mule? And I said, He's a donkey. Yes, he's mine. He said, woke up the whole park, woke up the dairy cows, woke up all the pavilions. And that's when I found out, and I also heard it, that he had the loudest bray of any of the donkeys and mules there. Um, So, (laughs) such an overachiever. Um, Extremely loud. Uh, We... uh, we have, uh, I have um, uh, recorded it. I uh, was hoping to use it for the audio book, but they didn't, ended up not using it. Um, and uh, this is the thing, though. He will not do it on command. And so it took me six weeks to get 49 seconds of prey. And um, because he, as soon as I set up the audio equipment, he clammed up. As soon as I put the audio equipment away and walked around the barn back to my car, he brayed. It was donkey time again. It was it was donkey all over. Mm. He's so smart. And I even tried to fool him with, you know, certain, uh, you know, pretend that I was packing up the equipment. It never fooled him. <laughs> and you, you often described the the volume level and 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 a certain part of his bray as being like a foghorn. Yes. And up yes. here in Vermont, being landlocked, people 
don't have any experience of foghorns, but I grew up in New York City, and oh. and I've I've heard foghorns, and they're 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 very deep and resonant and loud and yeah. and pervasive. Yes, that's it. Um, I um, I don't know if my uh, recording on my phone would be loud enough. Probably not. Um, I, let me just try it real quick here. Uh, and while you're doing that, I'll just reintroduce you. So thank I'm, you. I'm talking with Margaret Winslow. She's a field geologist, and she's the author of a couple of travel memoirs and the author of a new book about her donkey, Caleb, called Smartass, How a Donkey Challenged Me to Accept His True Nature and Rediscover My Own. And this is the Magical Mystery Tour on WGDR Plainfield and WGDH Hardwick, Goddard College Community Radio. Okay, coming back, um, I will play a break um, from cell phone to landline so uh for one thing it will not be loud enough but let's see if we can at least get the flavor of it yeah it's now it's it's i can i can barely barely hear barely it in the back hear. but yeah i i yeah. i recognize this i lived in southern spain for about a year when i was uh-huh. a child and and i there's i have a photograph of me riding a donkey but it was a, a regular burro donkey oh, yes. oh yes yes and um and they're a lot smaller than Caleb, aren't they? Oh, yes. Yes, they're quite small. And yeah. um, the picture at- of me, my legs are, are are splayed out, and my feet are probably only about a foot off the ground, and I was only about nine years old. So exactly. that gives you a sense of... And they're, they were not really used for riding. They were, they were used as pack animals. Yes to carry things. And yeah. in southern Spain, people were very poor and very, very few people could afford horses. So donkeys were actually quite a luxury for most for people there. Yes. Yes. Um, uh, and, and in fact, um, what I noticed even in the Dominican Republic is um, people uh, became a little more prosperous. Um, in terms of using donkeys for transportation, they'd replace them with motor scooters, um, and uh, they. Uh, but they still use them in the really steep um, areas in the coffee plantations, etc., uh, where there are uh, no roads, uh, very slippery footing. So, yeah, th- this is um, the unfortunate thing. The reason why there's so many uh, feral donkeys out in the West. Um, just, just as there are horses, is that when um, people began to use uh, cars and, and um, tractors and things like uh, motorized tractors, uh, they just uh, set the animals free and just let them run off. And so they've multiplied on their own um, uh, in the West. Uh, there are adoption programs, just as there are for Mustangs. But, um, but yeah, they became less desired. And the other thing about size, you <clears throat> mentioned the average donkey is about 40 inches at the shoulder, uh, and Caleb is 54. Um, most donkeys are not big enough for an adult to ride, and they're, um, 
they're perfectly suitable for children. They use them for beach riding in Britain still um, and things like that. But uh, they, they're they not big enough for uh, even your, yourself as a nine-year-old uh, uh, with your legs dangling down. Um, that, that was, you know, probably more than, uh, smaller than you needed even at that time for a riding animal. So... Um, so the riding donkeys are fairly uncommon and uh, uh, worldwide, and they're, they're groups that are trying to uh, uh, study the genetics and bring them back, <clears throat> but the big ones like Adam, uh, like Caleb are, you know, there are probably only a few thousand of them. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Anyway, I got off your topic. I oh, think. no, that's that's totally fine. <laughs> I, wherever we go is is fine. Another thing that that often happened in the ring when you were riding him is that he would veer off toward the wall and he would... Why don't you describe what that was like and what was going on for you as as it was happening? Okay, well, uh, when I first started to ride him, uh, and and some horses will do this too, um, he would... uh, veer towards a fence or a wall so that, like, he was trying to scrape me off. Uh, and I think that's probably exactly what he was trying to do. And sometimes it was very painful. And um, and I would keep trying to y- yank him away from, you know, if we were approaching it on the right, I'd be yanking as hard as I could on the left to get his turn his head away from the wall. And that would only bring his rear quarters closer in. And... So one of the first things the trainer taught me was if if he wants to try to scrape you off on the wall, um, pull to the right so that he's got his nose up against the wall and he'll move off the wall, <laughs> which, which worked perfectly. <laughs> so so uh, I guess it's like steering in the direction of the skid on ice. <laughs> you do the opposite of what seems to be what you want to do mm-hmm. and it fixes the problem. Um, yeah, so he, yeah, I, like walking off when I was trying to mount and, um, scrape, trying to scrape me off on a wall or, um, those are the kinds of things that, um, anim- I mean, horses will sometimes do this too. Uh, they're testing you and they want to see, you know, if you're going to get flustered, if you're going to be calm, if you're going to, um, the, the most important thing is to anticipate and, you know, not wait till he's veered off the track more than one step. Um, you know, don't assume he's going to go back on the track. Uh, take care of it right away. And so he wants, um, he, the message that I get is that that we need to be present. And that may be true with all animals, but especially with the donkey. He, he knows that my mind is... Um, especially when I first got in my mind was often on things going to work and uh, I was in a hurry, I was tired, I hadn't eaten or whatever. Um, he knew when I wasn't there and when I was there. And when I was not present with him, he would not cooperate at all. And sometimes would do something either mischievous or 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 else, uh, you know, something that would actually hurt, mm-hmm. <laughs> like, like kick me. Um, but... If if I could clear my mind and come up to him and just be with him for 
you know, a minute or two. Um, the grooming process is a wonderful way to bond, to, to not be in a huge rush to talk. Then 80, 90% of the time, he does what I want. The kids can be like that with their parents a lot. Yes. Yes. And, and uh, oh, go ahead. No, I, I was going to say, I, I'm unfortunately never had um, children. Right. So, so. Um, but you've taught, you've taught in college, and you must yes. have encountered some of that kind of behavior. <laughs> yeah, I, I have to say though that by the time I I taught all science, um, geology and engineering students, uh, a lot of filtering has occurred before I saw them. Mm-hmm. I, I wasn't seeing them saying remedial right, algebra or something uh, when they're not quite ready for college or don't really know what's involved. Um, so I, I have to say I had l- less of it than than most people do, but, but I often have readers who are um, parents to say that, you know, this is exactly what their toddler does or this is exactly what, you know. And, and I'll, I'll just give one example. Um, a friend of mine... Um, well, she became a friend through meeting at a book uh, a book tour. Um, she adopted a, a little girl from Siberia, uh, a baby, and uh, it was six months old, and uh, she had a lot of trouble. And one of the things that was a problem was, besides the fact that she was a new mother and didn't know um, how to do it in general, but uh, that how the baby was handled in the orphanage how it was touched, how it was lifted, how it was talked to was completely different from how my friend Tina would do it here or other uh, American mothers would do it. And so the, the, the body language, you know, there was no hope for uh, verbal uh, uh, understanding at that young age, but the body language was all different, what the baby expected. And um, so she really thought that that uh, the the story about Caleb, uh, you know, applied to more than just uh, donkeys or horses or animals in general. It, it seems to be pretty universal. Yeah, with kids, you you often have to become a master of reverse psychology. <laughs> Is that right? <laughs> yes, and you, you have. Well, my experience, you you have to learn to trick kids in a in a you know in a benevolent sort of a way because mm-hmm. kids. Kids are always testing your boundaries and 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 figuring and just you know figuring out your your weak points your your trigger points uh-huh. because they they just love to push your buttons and and as you know reading your 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 mishaps and escapades with with Caleb I could see that that happening and and kids you know kids are are highly intelligent and. And and they're learning to, you know, they're they're discovering their their own um, sense of self and independence and and of course testing the boundaries and is is a big part of that. And the only way you can test a boundary is by repeatedly overstepping it. I think. Yes. Yes. And they do that all the way through adolescence, and then. Um, <laughs> Probably a bit beyond. Um, yeah, uh, and I'm just remembering some of my. Uh, I, actually, I was um, 
not so much that kind of child. I was more the outwardly uh, compliant, do whatever I wanted when nobody was looking kind of kid. So, I, <laughs> but but I do understand from my friends' kids and my nieces and nephews about um, pushing boundaries. You know, whether it's sleep time, bath time, or read me another story. Always, you know, going for one more step beyond what what the parent wants to do. And and that is definitely Caleb. I suppose if I had had the uh, blessing of um, challenge of having children, I might have picked up on what Caleb was doing earlier. Um, I, I felt, and I still feel sometimes, that what Caleb does it is deliberate. And he's doing it to deliberately thwart me. And one of the reasons why um, donkeys developed a reputation for being stupid is that they just wouldn't do something. And so people would think, oh, you know, it's untrainable, uh, doesn't know what I want, is never going to know what I want, so forget it, um, that they'll wait you out until you give up, and then they'll take a step just when you thought they wouldn't. Um, learning that whole game, I guess it is, is is very important. And, and um, yeah, it's much more sophisticated with, with human kids. But, but donkeys are extremely smart. And I, the word sly at least applies to Caleb, uh, like with the stuff that he does behind people's backs. Uh, he, he once uh, switched, uh, I was grooming him in a stall next to another woman and he somehow managed when we weren't looking to switch our helmet cases and so I put on this helmet that felt horribly tight and couldn't figure out why my head had swelled and and the other woman put hers on it was swimming on her and we realized they were switched but we couldn't figure out how or when he switched them um, because the, hers was in a separate stall but somehow they do it um, and obviously it's intentional because, you know, he has no, there's nothing to gain by him switching, uh, switching helmets except to maybe delay us. And, and I think there are times and that, that Caleb was actually laughing at me. Mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah. Being mischievous and, and seeing what he could, what he could get away with or what he, how he could yeah. fool you guys. Yeah, yes. how we could outsmart you guys. Yes. And I'm sure that he was well aware of how how humans were convinced that they're so much smarter and so much more mm-hmm. in control. So that must have mm-hmm. been quite an impetus for him to to be himself. To to show me up and show yes. everyone up, especially yeah. trainers. <laughs> yes. Yeah. Um yeah, one of the things um uh, the book cover, two things about the book cover. Uh, one is the title, um, Smart Ass, and initially uh, my agent was a little bit worried about it because it's used as an expletive and, um, uh, sometimes, and I mean it in the sense of a know-it-all, which is, I think, the way it's usually used. Um, but So on the cover, they ended up breaking into two words and two different lines and two different colors. So it's now smart and then ass. And then there's Caleb himself. And the picture of Caleb is sort of a sneaky donkey looking around the corner. And 
it took about a hundred shots to get that picture, <laughs> and about an equal number of baby carrots. He, he, I wanted to get this shot that I had on a cell phone that was not high enough resolution for the cover, and the photographer and I spent two hours, but we got we got it. And so the the idea of a very smart animal and ass is the um, you know comes from the Latin uh, equus asinus. Also, asinine comes from the same root. Um, is is the word used? It's used 150 times in the Bible uh, for donkey. And um, but anyway, I, I was hoping that we could stick to the title, even though it it um, is a little bit edgy. But it describes Caleb so well. He's smart, and he is mm-hmm. a donkey. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and another thing that people who don't have experience with horses or donkeys may not realize is that Caleb weighs about 700 pounds and Mm -hmm. horses often weigh over a thousand pounds and they're very muscular, very powerful. And we human beings usually weigh in in the range between a hundred and 200 pounds. So Mm -hmm. in that dynamic of, of trying to be in control, it's a, it's a very precarious, um, relationship. That's right. And one of the things that impressed me, and I'm sure it impressed anyone who goes to a stable, is you see these little girls, you know, maybe six, eight years old, walking these huge horses around. And, the, you know, the kid probably weighs maybe 80 pounds max. And now uh, walking around this 1,200-pound horse, and it's following along on a on a slack lead. Um, there's no way you can the you, you can't win a tug of war with a, a large farm animal, and you can't um, physically push them around. They're, they're way too big. I you know my dogs and cats, if they were acting up, I just pick them up, <laughs> take them to another room. But uh, you can't do that with these big animals. So you have to have some agreement to, that you're going to do things together. And I have to say that um, you know. Uh, my book is about the the, the whole um, narrative arc and character arc has to do with my evolving relationship with Caleb right from the beginning. And um, and as we've continued on in our story, I've had him 16 years, um, you know, he does what I want instantly, you know, maybe 90, 95% of the time now. Now, when I first got him, it was maybe 5%. <laughs> And 5% told me he knew what I wanted and just wasn't going to do it. But um, now he usually does what I want. But I have to be alert. And if we're in the ring and my mind start, you know, I start enjoying the day or looking at the clouds, um, next thing you know, he'll be walking out of the ring and um, going off on his own uh, plan. So I, I do have to pay attention. Um, and And he lets me know when I'm not present, uh, even now. Instantaneously. I mean, it's like he can feel when you're there and when you're not. Yes, yes. And, and you know, you think if I'm, if I'm on his back, um, excuse me, um, if I'm on his back, he cannot see me. So all he has is, you know, I have a couple of saddle pads, a saddle, 
and myself, uh, all he has is, is what he can feel uh, through the saddle. And so it's not that. Um, oh, he can feel things through my hands. Uh, yeah, that, that's one of the biggies. He can tell, you know, if I'm really daydreaming, I, I tend to sort of loosen up on the, the reins and um, that, that's a that's a clear signal. But sometimes he, he seems to be able to read me, um, you know, even when I don't think I'm giving him any kind of signal. Uh, and he seems to know even when I'm walking up to a stall, uh, you know, you know, she's in a hurry. If she's in a hurry, it's going to take all day. That's what the donkey trainers told me. If you're in a hurry, they'll take all day. Mm-hmm. <laughs> yes, and I've always been amazed at, particularly from, you know, there's this mystique of, with horses, of rider and horse becoming one. And I've always been amazed by hearing about how horses will respond to people's thoughts. Like, they'll go in the direction that that the rider is is thinking or, or intending yeah. without even doing yeah. anything physically. Yes, and you know, I mean, there there's certain things like what they call um, seat commands or seat cues, uh, where you know you want to turn right, but you haven't done anything with the rein yet, but but you're already turning your head and your torso, so so they can feel that. That's for sure. It, it's very subtle. I mean, they they can't feel it very well unless you're riding bareback. But um, but yes, even if you're thinking something like, oh, up ahead, I'm going to take the right trail rather than the left. Um, they they often seem to to get it. They seem to understand. Um, and know. and one of the things I think I think this is something that Lou Bridgman said that you have to be really clear about what what you're wanting or what your intention is with with Caleb. Yeah. That if you're that if you're not clear, that if your thoughts are jumbled, then that will confuse him. That's right. And one of the problems I've had all my life, and I, I, it is ADD, but um, didn't get diagnosed as such because I compensated, I guess, pretty well, but was that I often have conflicting thoughts. Like, I, well, I could do it this way or I could do it that way. Or, or I'd be reading all these books on, you know, training horses and there's clicker training and Pirelli and there's, you know, Monty Roberts books about horses and horse whispers and and I'll and they all have different vocabulary and they all have different cues and I would I couldn't decide which one was going to work so I'd try one thing and then try something else or, or I'd try a mixture which was worse and this is a, a failing on my part um, that I was very inconsistent uh, again that's why it took so long to to um, establish our relationship it it was you know, really three or four years before we really turned the corner. Um, uh, and then it, it was constant, it, well, it wasn't constantly improving because it, it improved and got a lot worse and then it improved again, as the book says. But, um, but it did take longer than it probably should have because I was so inconsistent. Um, I know some of my friends with their kids have... Uh, fallen into the same trap of reading lots and lots of um, child care books and sort of doing one thing one day and one thing the next and uh, causing much more trouble than 
than if they just stuck with one method, no matter how flawed. Mm -hmm. So again, I'm talking with Margaret Winslow. She's the author of a new book, Smart Ass, How a Donkey Changed or Challenged Me to Accept His True Nature and Rediscover My Own. And this is WGDR Plainfield, WGDH Hardwick, Goddard College Community Radio. Um, could you talk about the time that Caleb attacked you and trampled you and what was going on in your head at the time and in your life that, that caused that? Yes, and of course it's always much more fun to tell funny stories, but there's time for more of those later. Um, yeah, uh, <clears throat> our uh, college was uh, g- going through, um, it, was, it was our provost at the time, wanted to adopt a corporate model and wanted to maximize um, uh, income coming in. Uh, and all of these meetings that I had to attend as chair and then later deputy chair um, never mentioned the words education, students, learning, uh, you know, fascination with knowledge, uh, all the things that I went into teaching to do because uh, I love it. Um, they were talking about uh, research dollars per square foot in terms of allocating a lab space, you know, the bigger grant, bigger lab kind of thing. And um, and they also, which was so ridiculous but true, they were trying to calculate uh, student, in other words, um, the amount of, stu- um, <laughs> yeah, student input per square foot, <laughs> meaning that um, if they're paying, uh, you know, 1500 for a course and they sit at a desk that's two feet square, and the room is this big, then that's the amount of income that's coming in for that room for that hour. And, you know, this is so ridiculous. Well, not only, you know, our lab bench is different from conference tables, different from little student desks, but, but you know, <laughs> students are all different shapes and sizes, and, and this is so ridiculous. But anyway, so they were a bunch of bean counters. And so I... Um, uh, and our department, um, right before this time, had had been uh, threatened with being closed down. Uh, you can't get rid of uh, tenured faculty un- unless um, they commit a felony and tell everybody about it, um, <laughs> preferably on campus. But um, that that's sort of a joke. But uh, the point is, you can get rid of whole departments, whole divisions whole schools within the university at the stroke of a pen, and the, and the jobs go with them. And so we, we were constantly under siege about um, being uh, eliminated, and we were losing uh, classrooms. The provost was coming around with a locksmith and going into labs, and somebody wasn't there, never mind that it was summer or they were on sabbatical. Uh, the uh, lights weren't on, therefore they're not using lab, and he would seize it. So it was very very stressful. Um, For those of us who cared about students and having, you know, fewer classrooms and less equipment and blah, 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 uh, it was very frustrating. This is something that, to a greater or lesser extent, is going on nationwide, so people can relate to it. Uh, But anyway, leaving it at that. So I would uh, drive, you know, beat my way through the traffic across the GW Bridge, um, uh, duking it out, 
<laughs> all the merges, and I would drive up to the stable, and I would be in a state, and I would say, you know, I've got 30 minutes before the before the barn closes or before I have a doctor's appointment, something, and we're going to go in the ring, and we're going to go around the ring four times and do a figure eight, blah, 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 and I'd have this agenda, and I would show up, and there'd be Caleb, and sometimes it would take me 30 minutes just to get his bridle on. <laughs> no, forget about <laughs> grooming, tacking, and getting him to the ring. Um, he, the, the more flustered I was, the more he resisted. And it took me a while to realize that he was mirroring me almost perfectly. I just thought he was my nemesis. And, um, and you know, this is supposed to be fun. This is supposed to be a break from work. Uh, this is joy, um, delight uh, with my lovely, wonderful, furry uh, donkey. And I'd be just frustrated because uh, I couldn't accomplish a goal. And so it got worse and worse. And then finally one day, I was in a particular state, and I arrived <clears throat> and I opened his stall, and he was way in the back of the stall. He's usually waiting there eagerly to try something on me. Um, and I went into his stall, and he charged me. And he not only knocked me over. Now, sometimes he would sort of brush past me and escape from the stall. That's a trick he still does sometimes, But if I have the door open. But he deliberately trampled me, and not only that, when he, after he knocked me down, he stepped on me with each of his hosts. And I was, it was only because it was a cold day, I'd gone back to my car and I put on a safety vest and my helmet, and it was just because I was cold. And I never put them on until I got to the ring. And so the safety, the padded vest may have helped me a bit, but the pressure was so great from him stepping on me that the zipper broke on the vest and then he knocked my helmet off with, with a kick. And so I was really, really terrified as well as hurt. And um, and so these old fears that I had about, you know, these big animals, uh, the horse who ran away with me, and et cetera, all came flooding back. And I was instantly afraid of him, you know, because it was so deliberate. Um, and so, you know, it's very, <laughs> it's very, very hard to write, um, and, uh, and very hard to have people read it. But, um, the, that was the, the very low point of our experience. And I knew that I was so busy and stressed out that I was the worst person to be with him. It was only going to make things worse. And then I, uh, you know, sort of, there's a few toing and froing things here, but uh, the short story is that I um, I sent him back to the original donkey mule trainers upstate, the Bridgmans, uh, and although they were very eccentric and all sort of had the husband, wife, and daughter all sort of had different approaches, um, I figured, you know, if they can't, you know, help them, nobody can, and so when I sent him up there, they evaluated him and said, you know, you, you know, he's he's really turned vicious, and um, you know, nobody's going to buy this donkey. You can't sell him, and 
if we can find some farmer to take them, you're going to have to pay, you know, to have them. And I was willing to pay, you know, anything. I just could not deal with it. I was, I was running away inside myself because I couldn't deal with it anymore. And, and I was hurt, um, uh, physically. And so, um, anyway, so I came up, uh, after he had been, um, evaluated, uh, and, uh, with the intention of signing over papers, and I was very sad. It was a long, drawn-out thing in the book about my conflicts about that and my rationale and and rationalizing. It would be better for him, blah, 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 blah. Have a better owner, the right owner understands them, blah, blah, blah. And I was, but I was running away inside my head. And so I went up there, and um, and they said, well, you know, uh, you know, Caleb's finished, but, you know, we have some really nice meals for sale right now. They're very well-trained, and, and they're broke to death, which is supposed to be a compliment. And the words broke to death, you know, meaning that they were completely trained and submissive, broke to death. And something went off in my head, and I said, no. I said, I don't want another animal. It's either Caleb or nobody. And so then they got to work on them, and uh, and then I came up uh, some weeks later um, and worked with him with, with mixed results, but still, <laughs> still um, things were a lot uh, better. And uh, and so we ended up um, being back home together, which is we ended up on a happy note. So, <clears throat> so what was it? that turned your relationship with Caleb around and changed the way you approached him, which subsequently changed the way he related to you? Well, this, despite the the balance sheet telling me this is not the time to have any challenges in your life that you don't need to have, um, unlike a um, an oppositional or conduct-disordered child, uh, I can sell this animal or have someone else take care of them. Um, I can pay for it. I can afford to. Um, I don't, I can't deal with it anymore. So all these rationale things, logical things, were just on the side of being donkey free. But at the same time, I was grieving deeply inside that we had a relationship um, and we had our ups and downs and, and a lot more downs in the rec- in the recent past to that moment. But there was something about him when, when I looked into his eyes, I thought, I, I want this to work out. And the thing that turned it around was one day, instead of being in the ring where everything would go wrong, we just went out in the woods and he went, whichever way he wanted, and then I indicated, you know, a little bit of which way I wanted to go, and he did, and it was all very slow, you know, we're we're seeing the world, we're smelling the flowers, this is, you know, we're together, and that was a turning point for me. I decided, you know, I'm going to make this work, and and we did, Um, but... I, uh, that deep feeling I felt 
for him when I first got him uh, never completely went away. He wasn't just a a riding animal, and another one would do just as well. If I wanted to get from point A to point B without having any problems, I'd get a motor scooter <laughs> like they do in uh, other countries. But I, um, I I wanted to stay with him, which I did. Um, I've never regretted it since. Um, I wanted to tell you one thing to this because uh, it takes place beyond the end of the book because it's recent. Um, two years ago, um, I went to a veterinary conference at Cornell and they had a donkey welfare symposium and people from all, all over the world came, talked about donkey behavior, uh, health care, medical issues, blah, blah, uh, rescue organizations. And um, the uh, I went up to the, the top uh, do, uh, donkey behaviorist in the world, Ben Hart, who's at the Donkey Sanctuary in England. They have chapters all over the world now. Um, and they basically wrote the book on, on donkey rescue. Um, and I went up to Ben after he did a demo with a, a recent wild donkey that had been brought in from, um, from the West, I think from Death Valley. And he was demonstrating how to gentle it. And afterwards, I went up to him and... I thought I was going to ask an objective question, but I ended up in tears, and I said, I've had my donkey now. You know, this is only two years ago, so things are good. I said, you know, I did, for the first four years, I did everything wrong with him, everything wrong. And and Ben said to me, but he forgave you, didn't he? And... That really made a difference to me. Now, now Jack Bridgman had also said that at the end of the book, that he forgave me. And um, and then this year, I met Ben at a, the same conference, this time at University of California, Davis, in October. And he had uh, read a copy of my book and talked to him afterwards. And um, two things he said. One was, he said, you know, I didn't put this in writing, but... Some of those trainers, I would have punched them. <laughs> mm-hmm. <laughs> okay, so that's one thing. But the thing that is is most compelling is he said, you know, it was so obvious in the book how hard you wanted to have a relationship with this donkey, how you didn't want to give up even though you didn't understand what you were doing. And Caleb understood that you were trying to have a relationship with him however flawed. And that made a difference to me that, you know, Caleb was still ready for me to turn around and and get it. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so, yeah, does that make sense? Oh, absolutely. I mean, I, I totally sense that in the book. And that was a big part of what was so harrowing was that I could see elements of that and and very much like difficult human relationships, it can often take years, you know, if a relationship survives, it can often take years of learning to navigate through those those treacherous waters to get to a place where you where you really learn to understand and and trust and there's often a 
a good amount of forgiveness for for all the past mistakes and and terrible things that we've done to each other and said to each other in the heat of the moment and there can be there can be forgiveness um there isn't always and one of the things is if things start off on the wrong foot um you know with like children with behavioral problems etc and uh uh, and other animals um, that we have, or, or say we get a rescue dog or something that has been mistreated before we got it. Um, you know, sometimes these things are more hardwired than other times, but there's always a chance for improvement. And and one, one of the donkey books I read um, didn't apply to Caleb, fortunately, but it said, you know, that a donkey that's been abused and neglected and terrified and isolated his whole life, you know, will never be a, a fun-loving, gregarious creature. But they will love you and understand that, you know, now life is different and they will be quiet, um, good partners. Okay. They won't turn into a, a Caleb or, you know, the the arch buffoon, uh, they'll still always have, you know, low energy because of that terrible start. Um, but with Caleb, because it was not, uh, what, what he and I went through was nowhere near the level of, um, of, uh, mistreatment on either side that, that can happen. Um, and there was a lot of good in there, a lot of, um, funny adventures together that, that we were able to come back from it all the way. Uh, that there is forgiveness. And you, you, you talk about how accepting his true nature helped you to res- uh, rediscover your own true nature. What did, what did you mean by that, and what did you discover about your own true nature? Yes, okay, there were a couple things. Uh, one is, when I first got him, I was projecting onto him you know, that I felt my own inner donkey had found its soulmate. And and it blinded me to some of the, the normal facts that, you know, he is a very large farm animal who, <laughs> who is used to having his own way um, and that I needed to, you know, step back and, and be more objective. But, but th- there was that feeling of uh, camaraderie. And one of the things that, because things kept getting gradually worse and worse at work is um, my ability to inability to stand up for myself. And one of the things that Caleb has taught me uh, in his behavior is that he is always himself. Um, he, he's not trying to fight people or be belligerent about it, but he's always himself. And and he stands up for himself if, if he doesn't feel that Things are, uh, you know, if he's, those rare times that he's been mistreated, he, he stands up for himself. And I was unable to stand up for myself at work. I, like all of my colleagues, we grumble in the hallways about this, you know, students per square foot garbage. And, and you know, we, we send each other scathing, you know, sarcastic emails and, and all the all the things that you do when, when you are too weak to confront. And so what happened was I... I was asked to, my chair was going in for knee surgery, so I had to attend this faculty retreat, and it was just chairs and all-top um, administration. 
And all all three days they were talking about, you know, corporate model and, you know, maximizing profits. And they were rent, treating the, the buildings, because we're in Manhattan, um, as prime real estate. And so, you know, if you, if you rent out this classroom to a startup, you know, for 10000 a month, you're, you're never going to make that much money from tuition students packed into a room, no matter how many you pack in. So, so they were talking about all this stuff, you know, um, inviting in more startups. They, their number had already been invited in. And, um, and so something in me just, this is when Caleb was away being evaluated and I was at my lowest ebb in my relationship with Caleb, but I, I was at this meeting and they had this huge um, poster up with, with the corporate goals that we were all going to agree to. And, um, and each table um, was asked to have, you know, we had table discussions and I was nominated to summarize what we had discussed. Well, what we had discussed was the same stuff we always discussed. We were just, you know, complaining and bitching and, you know, the way it used to be. Some of the older faculty were just checking their pension numbers and can't wait to get out of this place. And so anyway, we hadn't really discussed anything. But I went up front and I didn't know what I was going to say, but I saw this red magic marker on the podium and I picked it up and on their beautiful, you know, four by six foot poster, I wrote in education and students. I added two goals. And I talked about how we could think of it as a corporate model, whereas our customers are our students and our product is education. It seems so obvious saying it now, but, you know, it was not only revolutionary, but it was heretical mm-hmm. there was there was a pin, you know the looks on people's faces was like she's dead and <laughs> or her department's gone and my chair um who who secretly shared all the same feelings i did um when he found out what i had done he he was really mad at me because he thought you know our department's going to be on the block but i felt that Somebody had to say it, we were all saying it, and it had to be said publicly, and that regardless of the outcome, I felt relieved. And then I went up to this evaluation of Donkey, and that's when I said, it's Caleb or nobody. Something had changed inside me where I could stand on my own two feet and speak for what I believed in, and I really feel that it came from Caleb. Hmm. That's that's so wonderful. So I've been talking with Margaret Winslow, author of Smartass, about her wild ride with a large white donkey that changed her life. And that's it for this Magical Mystery Tour. Margie Winslow, thank you so much for being on the show. This has been so much fun. Thank you. This has been a delight. I'm re- really happy to be uh, talking to you today. Me too. And be well and enjoy Caleb. Thank you very much. I'd love to talk to you again. Okay. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. Now Delaney had a donkey. (laughs) (laughs) That everyone admired. 
temporarily lazy and permanently tired. A leg at every corner, balancing his head. And a tail to let you know which end he wanted to be fed. Riley slyly said, we've underrated it. Why not train it? Then they took a rag. They rubbed it, scrubbed it, they oiled and embricated it. Got it to the post and when the starter dropped the flag. There was Riley pushing it, shoving it, shushing it. Hogan, Logan and everyone in town. Lined up attacking it and shoving it and smacking it They might as well have tried to push the town hall down The donkey was eyeing them, openly defying them Winking, blinking and twisting out of place Riley reversing it, everybody cursing it The day Delaney's donkey ran the half mile race The muscles of the mighty never known to flinch They couldn't move the donkey a quarter of an inch Delaney lay exhausted, hanging round his throat With a grip just like a Scotsman on a five pound note Starter Carter, he lined it with the rest of them When it saw them, it was willing then It raced up, raced up, ready for the best of them They started off to cheer it, but it changed his mind again And there was Riley, pushing it, shoving it, shushing it Hogan, Logan and Mary Ann McGrath She started poking it and grabbing it and choking it It kicked her in the bustle and it laughed, hee-ha The Whigs and Conservatives, the Radical Superlatives, Liberals and Tories, the hurry to the place Stood there in unity Helping the community The day Delaney's donkey ran the half mile race The crowd began to cheer it And Rafferty the judge He came up to assist him But still it wouldn't budge The jockey who was riding it Little John McGee Was so thoroughly disgusted That he went and had his tea Hagen Fagan were students of psychology Swore they'd shift him with some dynamite They bought it, brought it and without apology the donkey gave a sneeze and blew the whole lot out of sight there was Riley pushing it shoving it shushing it Hogan Logan and all the bally crew police and auxiliary the garrison artillery the second in the skillings and the lifeguards too they seized it and harried it they picked it up and carried it cheered it steered it to the winning place then the bookmakers drew aside and they all committed suicide. The day Delaney's donkey won the half 